This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller. The Miller Report is a weekly podcast sponsored by WABC. We talk to business leaders, celebrities, CEOs, and power players. We talk about New York and New York real estate because real estate is the single most important investment anyone could make in their lifetime. Today, we have with us a special guest. He's not in the real estate business, but folks, without safety, there'll be no value in any of our real estate. He's a graduate from Brown University. He received his law degree from St. John's. During his career in public service, he has prosecuted gang members, including MS-13 and Colombian gang members. He has worked in the Brooklyn DA's office, so he really understands New York. But get this, since January 2022, he has officially been the Suffolk County District Attorney. Welcome, Ray Tierney, to the Miller Report. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, guys, this is a big one. I mean, I mean this like safety. Everybody's talking about it is the most important thing. And Ray has done such a great job. I mean, it's just it's 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 I'm just so happy that you're here. Ray, before we begin, tell us what the D.A. covers. What does it do? And what areas do you handle? Sure. I'm the uh, the district attorney of Suffolk County, and uh, Suffolk County is the uh, easternmost county on Long Island. It extends from Route 110, you know, Huntington, Melville, Amityville, out to all the way out east to the Ham- uh, Hamptons and Montauk. So it's uh, it's the second largest um, geographical geographic wise, the second largest county in in New York State, and and it's uh, got a, a population of about 1.6 million. So it's a big county. So does it cover like the police? Well, what, what areas? Do so, you, we, you know, we do the prosecution and uh, so we, we uh, handle the courts. And then there are uh, in the western towns, there are there's a Suffolk County Police Department. But out east, there are uh, east end um, police departments like uh, Southampton, uh, Southhold, West Hampton Beach, uh, East Hampton Village, Southampton Village. So there's a number of village and, and town police departments on the east end of Long Island. And then the west end is primarily covered by the Suffolk County Police Department. Got it. So, Ray, you've done such an amazing job and you have such a, a fantastic career in law enforcement. And clearly now you're the focal point in the recent events regarding the Gilgo Beach murders. But before we get into that, because I know that's why people are listening, everybody's tuned in, we all want to know about it, but I want the listeners to really understand how what you're going to say today is so important and so valuable because you really are the person that really knows what's going on. Recently, we've had such a trend towards decriminalization. I mean, it's insane. And it's just been this increase of illegal drugs like fentanyl, which I know it's all it's your wheelhouse. And I want you to talk about it and homelessness. It's killing our cities. Can you just tell us about it and what you think can be done? And just let's talk about that. Sure. I mean, I think there's, you know, like all complex uh, problems. There's not one solution. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about the fentanyl problem, first off, in Suffolk County, uh, last year we had 300 fentanyl uh, opioid overdose 
doses, uh, fatal overdoses. So that's uh, 93% of those were from fentanyl. So that means that more than uh, one resident a day of Suffolk County is dying from an opioid drug overdose, which is unacceptable. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. We know we know where these drugs are coming. These drugs are coming uh, you know, across our undefended border with Mexico, and they're coming from there uh, into our communities. These are not uh, like traditional drugs like like heroin or, or cocaine, something that's grown from the ground. These are made in labs, uh, and wow. they are uh, incredibly uh, powerful. Uh, you know, the, the, enough fentanyl uh, or the amount of fentanyl that weighs about what a mosquito weighs or a grain of rice is enough to kill a human being. So we're talking about an incredibly um, powerful, incredibly cheap, you know, because they're made in a lab, relatively cheap drugs that are flooding our communities and really uh, causing uh, this or driving this opioid overdose crisis. So, you know, we, what we've been talking about in our office is, you know, we need some tools to help us to uh, to combat uh, this problem. Obviously, it's just not about prosecution. It's about a whole host of things. And you're seeing this particularly on Long Island? Um, I think, I think, it is a problem on Long Island, but you know, I wish I could say it was unique to Long Island. Mm-hmm. It, you see it all over New York State, and you see it all over our country. Unfortunately, unfortunately. So, Ray, I've heard you talk about this, but I want the listeners to hear. And this is a very hot subject, and God, it keeps me up at night. Let's talk about bail reform. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think the problem. Um, there were a number of. Uh, uh, laws that were passed under, you know, uh, styled as so-called bail reform. Uh, each one individually was really bad, but when taken as a whole, it's really disastrous. And I think we're seeing the effects of that. And really what we need and, and what I've been talking about is we just need some some common sense changes, some some uh, amendments to the law to allow uh, prosecutors to do, to do their job. But, you know, you talk about uh, criminal justice reform, discovery reform, bail reform. That's really only one of a number of, of uh, laws that are really affecting public safety. So not everybody understands the politics that are listening to this. Can you just tell us in layman terms, what is bail reform? So bail reform essentially is there are certain uh, crimes that we can't seek bail on. Uh, and so no matter what happens, uh, no matter who the person is, no matter the facts of the case, if they're charged with a certain crime, no matter what, we can't seek bail on. Uh, and there are also with certain misdemeanor cases, uh, police can't even make uh, arrests. They just offer field appearance tickets. Uh, we can't ask for uh, oftentimes uh, initially you can't even ask for a warrant. You have to go out and, and find the person, invite them back to jail and then a second uh, back to court. And then a second time you could ask for uh, for bail. So what happens is the, the, you know, it results in this sort of turnstile of form of justice where people get arrested and then released, re- uh, arrested and released. Uh, we tried to combat that in Suffolk County. We, you know, we're doing uh, the best we can. But I think that, uh, you know, with a few common sense changes for number one, put the discretion back in the, uh, into the hands of the professionals, the, the uh, politicians in Albany, uh, they decided, you know, who was going to stay in jail and who was going to get out. I think that that decision should be led up to the professionals, the judges, and the litigants. Also, I think that uh, in New York State, we can't consider the single uh, biggest uh, factor when considering bail, and that is dangerousness. If a person is, we should be able to argue that a person is a danger to society and therefore should remain who in jail. Who decides that now? Uh, well, we can't. We can't argue it. 
<laughs> Great. So I, I used to be 49 states. Now I think it's it's uh, 48 states. You could ask ask for dangerousness. You could argue dangerousness. When I was a federal prosecutor, we could argue dangerousness. And like I said, you talk to any prosecutor, what is their biggest fear when when arraigning a person? Or what is their biggest consideration? That consideration is, is this person going to get out and hurt someone else? So the fact that Terrible. we can't argue that in court, it's just it's counterintuitive and it's it's not productive. Horrendous. Um, Ray, tell us about the clean slate bill that Governor Hochul is about to pass. Can you tell us about that one? So the clean slate bill. More good news. <laughs> well, the clean slate bill is uh, basically in, in, um, in New York, we had a uh, they revamped the ceiling statute. And that means that if you were convicted of a crime in the past, you could move to have your case uh, sealed. Uh, and that was you the, you would take an individualized approach uh, based on the, the facts of your case and de- decide whether or not it would be appropriate for your case to be sealed. Now, uh, the clean slate bill uh, basically is it's again, it's one size fits all. Uh, the politicians in Albany decide whose record gets expunged and whose doesn't. And, and the problem with that is. You know, oftentimes when when you're talking about people who are predators or people who uh, are fraudsters, uh, you know, if their if their past conduct gets sealed from, uh, you know, like banks or or other, uh, you know, people who deal with the public, public safety gets compromised. So, uh, again, it's it's a one size fits fits all. And it just it adds to this this overall trend to let's let's uh, put uh, the the. the you know the the, the the rights of the criminal which which is fine but those rights but it also it doesn't account for the victims not not the past victims or for any future victims this is going to affect the real estate industry because people will not be able to check background checks on criminals that'll be renting apartments and then you have you can't get them out I mean this is this is Outrageous. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Or like somebody who works at a bank. Right. If somebody has a history of stealing people's identity, now all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're working at a bank. Now all of a sudden they have access to everybody's identity and banking information. And then when something terrible happens, everybody's going to say, "Well, nothing could be done." Well, yes, uh, it could be done. And again, you know, you know, having a per- say a person has a drug problem at a, at a young age. And they they have a crime, and they they've had a, a, a you know a period of time where they where where they've got their life back in track. Absolutely, seal that. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is somebody who is continuing to engage in, in criminal activity, who is getting a job where they could where where they could victimize people yet again. Yet their background is going to be sealed on this one size fits all ceiling. Insane. So Governor Hochul is looking to sign this. I, it's been it's been passed. Yeah. Well, Ray, we need to talk about how we're going to get it unpassed. <laughs> so th- another, you know, bill that is being um, that that actually has passed and is is waiting awaiting signature uh, from the governor is, is a, it's called the 440 motion, and it's it, the bill is in the assembly. It's bill number 2878A, and in the Senate, it's bill number 7548. And what this 440 bill um, proposes is essentially a endless right of appeal for criminal defendants. Right now, if you are if you're convicted of a crime, you you can only appeal on certain grounds. Uh, and there's a methodology, and and there'll come a time when you exhaust your appeals. This bill proposes that 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 becomes 
um, that you can at, at any time for any reason essentially you can appeal your uh, uh, your conviction. Also, it uh, it creates requirements for defense attorneys, discovery requirements on defense attorneys that if they don't if they don't comply with those, uh, there is a sanction, and that sanction is imposed on the prosecution. So uh, you know that makes it real difficult. And the other thing, the other thing that which is is really profound is. That in the past, like say, uh, like say, um, uh, one re- really viable grounds for appeal is um, ineffective assistance of counsel, meaning the criminal defense attorney makes a mistake, and that could have led to the conviction. So usually, when appeal appeals courts finds that, they say that that the the, the defense attorney was ineffective. So we'll remand the case. We'll return the case back to the criminal court for retrial. Now, under this bill, every time that there's a reversal, the case is over automatically. So effectively, what this bill will do is it'll make the the worst attor- defense attorneys the best criminal defense attorneys because every time they're ineffective, basically they're guaranteeing that the, that the case will be dismissed against their client. It's like a strategy against like uh, against us, you know. And you know what I have to say? I want to say this publicly. People think you know it's not going to affect us. They leave New York. They're going to go to Florida. They go to Texas. By the way, it's coming to the Hamptons. The Hamptons are the suburbs of New York. If New York gets screwed, so will the Hamptons. I want to say this to everybody listening: We need to band together because right now the animals are running the shop. If you can't arrest criminals, they, there's no there's no penalty for them. You've put, there's no cameras in grocery stores. I had Morton Williams, the owner of Morton Williams, on my show last week. He has three thousand employees, seventeen grocery stores. He spends $3 million a year on security, and he was told now he can't even put cameras in the stores because it's discrimination. So, and they, what they do is they, they, they go, they steal, and they resell the stuff. It's, it's like we're bringing down democracy. We need law and order. We need to help. We need to, and you're here helping, but you're just one person. Well, I mean, I think like with this bill in particular, uh, again, the, uh, the, 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 the people who've passed it, they don't realize the ramifications of what they're passing because they're listening to the advocates, but they're not listening to the experts. And th- if this, this case, uh, if this bill, if it passes, it'll fundamentally change our criminal practice. Uh, and to the point where we will be so bogged down by appeals, uh, there won't be m- much time to, or money or or, F- or personnel to do a- much of anything else. And, you know, at the end of the day, may- maybe that's the, the strategy all along. I, don't I know. think you might be right. I mean, look at what happened with the uh, Marine in the subway. I really have been following that. To me, that really hit my heart. He saved people, and what did he? Now he lost his 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 career, his life, because he said, "Who's going to want to try and save anybody in a subway? What about if it's what happens if it's your child, your daughter that's on the subway? Why would anybody help?" Did you follow that case? I actually I haven't. I don't know all that much about the. It case. was a marine that was. I mean, other was, than what I read, yeah, but I haven't seen the video or anything. So you're basically saying that they're, they're, they're trying to stop anybody from helping the average citizen stay safe. Yeah, I mean, in every I think, which way. And again, I think I think what we've been talking about all along is, you know, each of these laws individually really bad, mm-hmm. but when taken as like a slate, it's it's disastrous. And uh, you know, so that's why uh, we have to, as citizens, I, I would urge uh, the listeners to talk to their representatives in Albany and say, we want you to prioritize. Uh, uh, public safety. We want. We don't want you to pay lip service to to public safety. We want you to to specifically pass laws that further the cause of public safety. How about vote? I read that only twenty three percent of the people voted 
So I think that is the biggest issue. That's That should be the message is that we have to vote so people feel like they, it's not, not going to just be so easy for them to go in if they don't help us. Absolutely. And recently, you've been involved in issuing um, invol- in issues involving gun control. A large ma- majority of the country are in favor of mandatory background checks. What are your thoughts about this? So I think in, in New York State, we have some of the strictest gun laws, uh, if not the strictest gun laws. So I think it's just a question of, um, you know, so so we have legal gun ownership and then we have illegal gun ownership. If, mm-hmm. if you look at all of the shootings, uh, both when I was in Brooklyn and and while out here on Long Island, all of the, the criminal activity involving guns involves unlicensed guns. Right. So I, I think, and then I think a lot of times that gets sort of confabulated between, you know, gun control. Um, gun control is, is great, and there should be uh, restrictions placed on uh, a gun ownership, and there, there should be requirements, obviously. Uh, but but what's driving the, the, the criminality and what's driving the deaths is unlicensed gun ownership by people who... Uh, you know, are not are not seeking to have a license or not following any laws. In fact, they're breaking the laws and they're using guns to do so. So when you talk about changing laws, that's great, but it's not going to affect the conduct of the people who are driving the violence who are not following any of the laws to begin with. What about the um, the, the machine guns? And the bullet magazines, what about that? Again, you know, when you're talking about assault weapons, uh, you know, weapons of war, obviously, you know, those should not be um, uh, possessed by by uh, uh, citizens. Uh, and I think that in New York State, you can't possess assault weapons, so that's good. But again, you know, these are bud- buzzwords that are being used. But when you, when you go down in the inner cities, when you go out to Suffolk County and you see people being murdered by guns, those are not... Uh, assault weapons. Those are not be, by people who have uh, gun permits. These are these are by people, criminals who are illegally possessing uh, handguns. Got it. So let's talk about what everybody's waiting to hear. <laughs> the big thing: the entire country, the entire country, is aware of the recent discoveries and the arrest in the Gilgo Beach murders. Thank you, Ray, for doing that. I know you might be limited about what you could talk to us about and some of the challenges that have faced during this, but can you just tell us a little bit about the case? I mean, he was an upstanding citizen, right? He was an architect. He had two lives. Like, tell us what you can share with us. Sure. Well, he certainly, you know, he was certainly living a dual life, and he certainly uh, hid, you know, the the aspects of uh, certain aspects of his life from, from the rest of society. So the Gilgo case, obviously, it's about 13 years. Uh, you know, the the four women uh, they were they were murdered between uh, July of 2007 and September of 2010. Their bodies, their four bodies, were discovered on Gilgo in December of 2010. That's the case that we're doing. The, what's been known as the Gilgo Four. So uh, that case was about 12 years old when I took office in January of uh, 2022. Uh, starting at, um, we started our task force. We brought in uh, a great group of investigators from the Suffolk County Police Department, of course. So wait a minute, just back up. So when you took over, there was nothing being done. Where, where was it when you started? When I st- when we started, um, the, the DA's office had had an investigation. The police, uh, the Suffolk County Police Department, were, were investigating, but they really weren't working. Uh, together all that well, and none of these other agencies were involved until you came along. <laughs> so when we got when we came in, uh, you know, we we put together this task force, and uh, t- t- uh, the task force consisted of prosecutors, investigators, 
and analysts from my office, from the Suffolk County Police Department, from the New York State uh, Police, from the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, and uh, the FBI. Uh, we, we had our first uh, meeting on February 1st of 2022. Six weeks later, on March 14th, uh, Rex Yurman was uh, identified as a suspect in this case for the first time. And then from there, uh, it was a sort of a feverish work to try to put the case together. How was he a suspect? What was the first thing? There so there were rumors that it was a pizza box. Well, there were a number. There <laughs> were there were a number of things that we that were in the case that we had, had inherited, uh, and the, the big things were uh, that uh, you know there, there were four women that were were murdered, and that uh, the, the murderer used these bur- four separate burner phones, which are just basically anonymous prepaid cellular telephones that he used to lure the women to their deaths and then discontinued the use of each of the four phones shortly after their deaths. So a lot of the location, so you can't get subscriber information from those phones, but you can get location data based on cell site. So what uh, the FBI had determined in, in back in 2012 that a lot of the location of the phone calls, both by the victims and as well as the perpetrator, they occurred in a very constrained area in Massapequa Park, as well as in Manha- Midtown Manhattan. So we had that little piece. Uh, we also had that um, the uh, last woman to... Um, to, to disappear, Amber Costello, uh, she disappeared on September 2nd of 2010. So on, on September 1st, she came in contact with an, an individual who was driving this dark-colored uh, Chevy Avalanche vehicle. Uh, he was a very, and his physical description was, he was a very large man, like uh, 6'4", 6'6", 250 pounds, just a very uh, solidly built white male with, with glasses. Um, and so uh, once we got, got on board the case and we started to look at it, and we, we, disco- we, unco- we discovered or re- rediscovered, I guess, this evidence, uh, we also established that, that this individual, Rex Yerman, uh, he uh, owned a Chevy Avalanche. He met, he met or, uh, you know, uh, what was consistent with the unique physical description. But not only that, he lived in both um, Massa- – he lived in Massapequa Park and he worked in mid- midtown Manhattan within these areas of interest that the FBI had first established in 2012. So at that point, uh, we, we saw him as a viable suspect and then we just kept on working the case. Uh, and and trying to uh, establish more evidence. Now, again, these are just allegations at this point. So we look forward uh, to proving the case against the defendant at trial. How did you finally catch him? So what happened was uh, the other thing. So the other thing that I had neglected to mention that uh, the women uh, they were they were they were left in Gilgo Beach between July of 2007 and September of 2010. Uh, they weren't discovered till December of 2010. They were left open to the elements. It's a very harsh. It's a, it's right by the ocean the, with the ocean air and the open elements. Very harsh uh, um, environment. So by the time the, the women were found, they were uh, mostly skeletonized. <sighs> So there was not a lot of for, of things of forensic ev- uh, value at, at the scene. However, there were these five question hairs uh, that uh, even you know those hairs they were they were too damaged for traditional DNA. Hairs. I've been listening to this. Hairs. hairs. You know how big a hair is? A hair. <laughs> yeah, single a single strand or a portion Insane. of a strand. And even those strands of hair, they were uh, they were too damaged for traditional uh, uh, DNA testing, but there's something called mitochondrial DNA, which is 
inside the the shaft of hair when protected by the outside of the hair. So we tested though we we tested those and we had established a profile. So once we established <laughs> the the defendant as a suspect, we said we wanted to get an abandonment sample of his DNA so we could compare his mitochondrial DNA profile with that left at the scene. So you know we surveilled him with the help of the Suffolk County PD and the FBI. Uh, and in, in one instance, we obtained a, uh, a DNA profile from some from a pizza box that he had discarded. Uh, we established DNA profiles, uh, mitochondrial DNA profiles, not only from him but from his family. We went back and compared those those uh, profiles. And with regard to um, Megan Waterman, there were uh, there were two hairs. One one was consistent with his DNA profile. One was consistent with his wife's. And then with regard to Amber Costello, there was another hair recovered from that. That a mitochondrial DNA profile was consistent with his wife's as well. So once we had that, um, we uh, you know we that was a that was a, a big day. That was a, a good day for the task force. Once once that happened. Um, congratulations! Like really, is this like the longest case that's ever been solved in history? No, I think I think I'm sure there have been them bigger. It's probably the longest one that I've ever done personally. But they, why did you been, choose to be the lead prosecutor on this? Um, so you know, I, I had been a prosecutor for 30 years. I I did the uh, most of the MS13 murder cases. I, I prosecuted you know as uh, with with uh, with the team in in uh, you know in the, when I was a federal prosecutor, I did a Colombian drug cartel case. I did uh, political corruption cases. So I've done big cases my my entire career. I started with the case. I started with, with the case even before I took office. Some of the family members had reached out to me, and uh, you know, we said we were going to do everything we could. We we're going to develop this task force, and we we're going to work to to solve the case. And then I just started working the cases. I participated in the grand jury, and then when it all was was said and done, I was one of you know maybe you know three or four other ADA or DAs in my office who. Knew the case, mm-hmm. and and given my, my background, and given the fact that it's my responsibility in my office, I said I was going to do it. You don't let anything go. <laughs> no, well, you know, I you know, listen, I'm I'm active in, in a great many cases. We had the um, the Valva case where the little boy froze to death in, in his garage. I didn't I didn't uh, you know uh, I didn't prosecute that case myself, but we, you know we were involved with with the team and helping them uh, support them in, in the great work that they did. So. So just to, uh, as a woman, I'm really, what, what shocks me is that the wife knew nothing. Like when you went in the house, what did you see? And do you think she really was, she just had no clue? So right now we have, we have three of the four murders uh, charged. Uh, the murder of uh, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Warneman, and Amber Costello. Uh, the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes is, is ongoing. We're going to conclude that investigation soon. Uh, but with regard to to the three, well, the first thing we saw that during the time of the commission of the murders, when the, when the women uh, disappeared and were murdered, uh, the the wife and the the children of the defendant were out were out of the state. Uh, they they weren't there. Um, so, you know, there there was nothing. There's no evidence to show uh, that uh, she was aware. You know, specifically aware of her husband's activity. Imagine that shock. What did you find when you went in the house? Uh, the house was uh, was I would say cluttered. <laughs> that's that's a bit of an understatement. It was, you know, the, the, it's a you know smaller house, uh, but there was a lot of, of, of clutter in it. There was about uh, approximately about two hundred eighty three guns found uh, in the house. He had uh, he had permits for ninety two handguns. So we knew going in that there were going to be a lot of guns. But that's uh, you know that's some some of the, some of the things we recovered. And when we executed the search 
search warrant in connection with the defendant's arrest. We, we're looking for biological evidence, you know, hair, DNA, fluid, what have you. So it was a very painstaking process to go over that house inch by inch by inch. And it was a very, you know, there was a lot of, lack of a better word, stuff in the house. So, so, so we, you know, it took a long time uh, for the, the, the criminal forensic folks to go through the house. I read there was like a doll, a weird doll. What was that? So there were a number of things that were taken, number of items of evidence that were taken out of the house. And, and I think, you know, when, when the press is there, that this, this, uh, case garners a lot of attention or interest so they're they're sort of watching everything and and what what people don't understand is you you're when you're taking something out you could be looking at that specific thing mm. or you could be looking for a stain or or an item of evidence that's found you know lying either on or in the, in the item so uh, it, you know a, a lot of people like to speculate and say well what the, you know but you just we just have to wait until uh, the the criminal forensic uh, people are are done doing their job. Got it. Okay, I'll ask you that off camera. <laughs> so let's do, given the high profile of this case and some others. What do you think about cameras in the courtroom? Um, you know, I think that that's that's up to uh, the court. Uh, you know, I, I think it's I think it's difficult because there are, uh, you know, there's a number of uh, factors to balance and. Uh, so you have uh, the right of the public to have an open court courtroom, which is which is a constitutional right. Uh, but then you also have privacy rights, privacy rights of the families, some of the witnesses. So uh, you know that's usually a balancing test, and that's something that uh, obviously the, the media is going to want the courtroom to be open. Uh, I don't know if the, the defense is going to want the court to be open, uh, and the court usually sort of balances out. Uh, you know, I, I know in the Valva case, uh, the judge didn't allow. A video uh, in the, in the courtroom, but allowed uh, camera still photography, and you weren't allowed to take uh, any photos of the of the um, the jury or some of the witnesses. So the judge will probably sort of look to strike the balance between uh, you know letting the public know, but also protecting the privacy rights of, of a lot of the the, the victims and, and litigants and uh, the jury in the case. Do you have an opinion? You know what I uh, I uh, don't, uh, and I uh, you make know, you more famous if that's possible. Well, normally what we do is you know we, we're I'm I'm sensitive to uh, number one the jury. I'm also sensitive to uh, you know some of the victims' families, and 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 so uh, usually the judge uh, strikes a balance. But usually usually we don't take a position. Okay political answer if that's okay I'll, I'll let it slide well i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of legal uh, considerations to consider but also the you know the the one thing that i'm very sensitive to is the 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 privacy rights of the uh, of the victims and their families so let's go back to real estate because the miller report is a real estate show and i know that governor hochul is looking to put affordable housing in suffolk county she's trying to mandate where it goes and i mean what is your opinion of that do we need it who should make these decisions what do you think about that well i think again you know I, although i don't do real estate uh-huh. obviously and i'm not an expert in real estate if i if i was an expert in real estate i'd probably be a lot better off than i, I currently am but, we could trade, <laughs> but uh, I, I would say this: I think it's 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 you know more of a of a sort of alarming trend where you have people from you know from from Albany uh, saying this is what you know this is what communities need, and you know every community is different. Uh, so for for somebody who has no ties to Suffolk County, no expertise in Suffolk County or any county for that matter, to say you know you have to do X by, by this amount of time, it's really it's it's not. Uh, it's not a good way 
uh, to govern. Um, and, you know, and I know as, you know, the Suffolk County District Attorney, uh, we talk about prosecution, we talk about fentanyl, and, um, you know, obviously we, we need strong prosecution, but we also need addiction services, we need mental health services, we need housing for our citizens in Suffolk County who are struggling. And I know from being a prosecutor that those, those services are stretched to their... I, I, absolute breaking point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now you, you know, now you're going to mandate other, other people. Well, well, where, where are they going to live? Um, what about, um, you know, what about hospitals? What about public, what about, um, um, mental health? What, what about, uh, you know, addiction services, uh, not only for, for the, the, for everyone coming in, but for the people who are already there. And if that system is already stretched thin, um, the other, you know, so that's one of the thing. And I think a lot of the local people get frustrated because these mandates come from on high and they come, there's this, this mandate and this, this, they dictate what's supposed to happen, but they don't, they don't come with any money. Right. It, it, a lot of ideas. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with, 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 uh, with, um, bail reform and, and, and criminal justice reform. They initially, they enacted this, these measures and then they said, okay, well you figure it out. Now, all of a sudden the amount of resources needs to, to prosecute one case has, you know, multiplied tenfold. And initially, they didn't have. They didn't bring any money. At least now we're starting to get some funding to help us with some of these initiatives, which is great and which we appreciate. But I don't see the same thing happening uh, with, with with the issues that you're talking about. So, does the DA even get involved of the um, with property owners and tenants? Uh, well, that's something that the, that's a civil uh, that's a civil disposition. So that's a civil proceeding. We we don't have anything to do with it. The Suffolk County Sheriff's Department handles uh, uh, those types of issues. Obviously, oftentimes you know there'll be criminality that arises out of uh, you know holdover type situations, which we will handle. But the the underlying eviction, we the, our, my office has nothing to do with. But you're like the people. You're like the attorney for the people. That's how I consider a DA, right? Aren't you the people's attorney? Yeah, we represent the people of the state of New York. Yeah, but only in criminal matters and a uh, civil disposition or dispossession. Uh, that is, uh, that's a that's a civil matter. So we don't have we don't play a role in that. I understand. So listen, the the topic of of safety and crime has never been more important. I mean, I think we're all feeling it. Everybody talks about it. You turn on any television, you go in the streets. It affects my business. People don't want to come to New York because they're afraid. 500,000 people have left. They don't want to be in New York because of this. The average person, they don't know what to do. Can you just give us some tools, what you would think the average person could do to help the situation? Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's hard. I think uh, you know I could really only talk to Suffolk County, and what we we really are very concerned about in Suffolk County is quality of life, mm-hmm. um, because we we know that the the reason why people have come to Suffolk County is uh, you know they they deem it to be safe and they want they want to be treated fairly, but they want opportunity not not for themselves, more importantly for their children. They want educational opportunities and opportunity to to, to live a good life, uh, and and maybe own their own home one day. So. Um, you know, and and that is a sentiment that you hear from you know from every single community on Long Island. That's what everybody wants on, in Suffolk County. So, you know, I, I, the one thing that I, I talk to to people about is, you know, how we should be we as public officials we should be working to safeguard people's um, safety. Uh, and their quality of life. And so that's what we, we try to do. That's what I try to do as, as um, the DA of Suffolk County. 
Well, thank you for coming on the Miller Report. I really don't have any more questions, but I do want to let you know that on behalf of myself and WABC and all of my friends, we support you. We want to help, and we want to help change these laws to make your job easier. And thank you so much for what you've done, and I think you're incredible. Oh, thank, thank you so, you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Dear listeners, thank you for coming on my podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please download, subscribe, and share. Thank you so much. Bye. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.